one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In an experiment, why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, how galaxies could exist without dark matter. And stories of Ukrainian researchers caught in the conflict. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Nick Petrichow. First up on the show, astronomers have observed a string of galaxies that seem to exist without dark matter. Now, dark matter is a mysterious thing that nonetheless appears to make up most of the matter in the universe, but physicists are pretty sure that it exists, because without it, star and galaxy motions just don't seem to play by the rules of gravity. So to make the motions make sense, and even to form galaxies in the first place, we need something invisible to be there, exerting a gravitational pull. That something else seems to be dark matter. But then, a few years ago, researchers saw something that seemed to challenge this idea. A celestial body that did play by the rules. So here we had a galaxy that behaved as it should, which made it an anomaly, because every other galaxy does not play by the rules. So in that galaxy, there was no need for dark matter. That's Peter van Dockum, who four years ago observed two unusual galaxies that seemed to lack dark matter. When this result was published, many researchers were critical of it, questioning how such galaxies could form without dark matter's pull. Well, this week in Nature, Peter has a new paper that looks at those galaxies in detail and makes another bold claim, this time about how they formed, and it involves something called a bullet collision. Reporter Lizzie Gibney gave him a call to find out more, and she started by asking Peter to talk her through this bullet collision and how it could have led to galaxies without dark matter. So what happened here, we think, is that there were two ordinary galaxies 8 billion years ago, just minding their own business, both of them mostly composed of dark matter, like every other galaxy, 
and a lot of gas. Gas is the stuff that galaxies are built from. And those galaxies did something unusual, namely they collided almost head-on with very high velocity. And what happens then in a collision like that is that the dark matter and the stars essentially pass through one another. The galaxies are so empty that the chance of a collision between two stars or between two dark matter particles is extremely small. And so the galaxies essentially pass through one another. They, they see each other, they feel each other, but then they say goodbye very quickly and they go on their merry way. The gas, though, the gas in these galaxies can't do that. It collides with the other gas and it compresses, it cools, and it starts to form stars. And so what happens is the gas stays behind and is separated from the original galaxies. And that gas then turns into stars, and the dark matter is gone, right? And the original stars are gone. So you get these pristine galaxies formed in one, one go, effectively, out of this gas that was uh, left behind in the collision. And what we think is that there wasn't just one galaxy that formed, but that this led to this trail of galaxies that were formed out of individual gas fragments that all came from these two galaxies that are, you know, still going on their merry way, having lost their gas, but still retaining their dark matter. So we have this string of galaxies that were the gas that was left behind in the collision. And what about the, I guess, the ends of the trail where the dark matter presumably still resides? Are they something you're able to study or see? Yeah, this is the where this story becomes somewhat mythical. Those two objects that originally collided should still be out there in these scenarios, but they should be incredibly dark because they've lost all their gas early on. They probably didn't have a lot of stars to begin with because it was such a long time ago. They hadn't formed many stars yet. And when we looked at the ends of the trail, there are actually two galaxies, so one on each end, that are very unusual. And interestingly, it had been noted before, completely independently, that there are these unusual galaxies in this group. They're very big, very fluffy, and one of them in particular is extremely faint. It's one of the faintest galaxies ever discovered. And what we think now is that those galaxies are the dark remnants that they actually are extremely dark matter dominated and that they're mostly composed of dark matter. So ironically, we think what we're seeing is two things. One, a string of galaxies that have no dark matter, only you know what you see is what you get galaxies, and then two galaxies that are almost invisible where all the dark matter still resides. That will be extremely exciting if we can show that this is where all the mass is and that these galaxies also behave differently, namely that they have too much mass, too much dark matter, you know, from, from what you expect based on how, how faint they are. And can this really unusual system of galaxies, can that tell us anything about dark matter itself, which is obviously still so much of a mystery? Yes, in, in several ways. The first is a seemingly trivial point, but important, namely uh, if we can show that dark matter can separate from normal matter on the scale of galaxies so that the galaxy can have dark matter, extra dark matter, no dark matter. It means that dark matter is real. It means that it is stuff, a substance, something you know you can touch. And that is important because there are alternatives. Some people have suggested that dark matter isn't actually a particle or a thing, but a manifestation of our lack of knowledge of physics. That is, the laws of physics may behave differently out there in the universe on these very large scales, such that what these motions that we see 
we interpret this extra mass, but in fact, it's a modification of Newton's laws that leads us into believing there is extra mass. Those theories have, you know, have come and gone over the years, but showing that dark matter can be separated from galaxies, that would not be possible in those alternative theories. And four years ago, you made a discovery that proved somewhat controversial. So how much evidence do you have that this amazing narrative of a, of a single collision creating a whole string of dark matter-free galaxies is what actually happened? Is it just plausible or can we say it's the most likely explanation for what we see? Well, I would say at the moment it is the most likely explanation in the sense that it is a single explanation that explains all these very different observations that we've gathered over the past four years, including the observation now that there's this trail of all these galaxies. At the same time, we do not have a smoking gun piece of evidence that proves that this is what's going on. And that's what we need to do. We need to verify the predictions that this model makes. In the past, over the past four years, that has happened repeatedly, that people said, well, are they really sure? And then we went out and other people went out, got more data. And what happens is it's not really uh, that we were proven right, although that happened. It's that we learned more. And so we learned more about the system and then found new things, including now this bullet explanation. And so our hope is that that will continue, that others will question our results. We will question our results. We'll gather more data and then learn more about this collision and about these remarkable galaxies. That was Peter Van Dockum from Yale University in the US. For more on these curious galaxies, make sure you check out the show notes, where there'll be a link to the paper and Lizzie's news article on the topic. Coming up, we'll be hearing stories of researchers who've been caught up in the war in Ukraine. Right now, though, Dan Fox is here with the research highlights. The amount of helium in the Earth's atmosphere is rising, caused in part by fossil fuels. Scientists have expected that as we continue to extract and burn fossil fuels, helium would become more common in the atmosphere, as an isotope of helium, called helium-4, is known to seep into fossil fuel reservoirs. But they've not been able to measure the element with enough precision to detect such a trend, until now. Researchers analysed 46 air samples from Australia and the US and found that the amount of helium-4 rose by around 0.2% between 1974 and 2020. While helium doesn't contribute to global warming, it is another sign of the increased use of fossil fuels. Read that research in full in Nature Geoscience. A prototype solar energy device has been shown to be more than twice as efficient as the best conventional solar cells, converting more than 65% of the sun's energy it receives into electricity or heat. Solar cells convert some of the electricity that they absorb into electricity, with the rest becoming waste heat. But hybrid solar devices seek to capture this heat. This prototype, dubbed the Sunflower System, uses a dish that concentrates solar energy on a module of highly efficient solar cells, the centre of the sunflower. The cell's waste heat is then captured by a water cooling system. This system heats the water to more than 245 degrees Celsius, preventing the solar cell from overheating and providing useful hot water for other processes. The team say the Sunflower system is more robust and cheaper to produce than similar hybrid solar devices, making the system's cost competitive with that of natural gas. 
the device could be particularly useful in industrial sectors that are hard to decarbonize. If that's captured your interest in this research, read it in full in Cell Reports Physical Science. The war in Ukraine is coming to the end of its third month. And in recent episodes of the Nature Podcast, we've been looking at how the conflict might affect the big picture. Things like energy and climate, research funding and future collaborations. But of course, there are countless stories of individuals who've had their lives turned upside down by war. And our colleague Nisha Gaind has been reporting on some very personal stories of Ukrainian researchers who've been affected and how the scientific community is coming together to help. She spoke to Benjamin Thompson about these stories and started by explaining the current state of the conflict. It's three months into this brutal and horrifying conflict and we are in the midst of a large humanitarian crisis in Europe and things on the military front are developing now with the active conflict moving more to the east of Ukraine. And the length of this conflict has given us the opportunity to do some deeper reporting into the human stories. You know, research happens in basically every corner of the earth now. So wherever there are people, there are researchers. And those are the voices that we're very keen on hearing and the stories that we really want to tell. Mm. And let's talk about some of those researchers then that you spoke to as part of your feature article. Let's start maybe with Elena, a plasma physicist, and well, the epic journey that she had to escape the conflict. Yeah, that's right. She is one of the millions of Ukrainians who fled the conflict and one of about 20,000, we estimate, researchers that might have fled. She responded in the way that many citizens of Kyiv did. She left the city, she went to the home village where she grew up, and they hoped that they would be able to avoid direct fighting. But sadly, that came to them quite quickly. And she related to me the moment she will never forget is when a Russian rocket landed in her neighbor's garden. At that point, she knew that she and her family had to get out of Ukraine and eventually made their way to the Polish border and then to the Netherlands. And it's worth mentioning that the reason that they went to the Netherlands, her and her mother and her sister and her dog, is because they just got on a bus and they took whatever bus would take their dog, regardless of destination, which I just think is incredible. And so you detail this escape in your feature article. And she now finds herself, as you say, in the Netherlands. And she's picking up research again, which is astonishing. I have been filled with admiration for my sources who are living through a war and who are, many of them, seeking to return to work as fast as they can. And they've been aided by the research community who very quickly have jumped into action to support their colleagues from Ukraine. And Alana, when she was still in Kyiv, was contacted by a Ukrainian acquaintance who had offered her help and said, do you want to leave Ukraine? At the time, she said no. But once she had made it to the Netherlands and after some time of recuperating from the trauma of war and, and of their flight, decided that she wanted to start working again. She told me how important it was to start healing, to start getting back on their feet, to start contributing again. And so she got in touch with her acquaintance, who's part of this network called Science for Ukraine, which is collating these job offers for Ukrainian scientists. And through that, she has managed to link up with a research institute, and she is discussing how she might continue her research. And her sister is also a physicist. So they're doing that together. And this kind of organisation and Science for Ukraine is really 
worldwide, right? People really are stepping up to offer support or places wherever they can. Yeah, that's right. So one of the other people I profiled, Taras, who is a genomics researcher in the US, but is originally Ukrainian. He has been part of coordinating that effort and also on his own has gone to extraordinary lengths to help Ukrainian scientists and students who are having to flee. And with great success at his university, Oakland University in Michigan, he already had several Ukrainians in his lab. And on top of that, he's created another position for a Ukrainian graduate student who he's trying to assist to get to the US. And has also created a place in his lab for a young data engineer, Valerie, who I also profile for him to do a master's once he gets back from the front line where he is currently being a medic. Yeah, the story of Valerie really is something else. And goosebumps for me, Nisha, when I read about it. So as you say, he is literally on the front line in Ukraine right now. Yeah, that's right. He was very keen to speak to us and to tell us his story. And it truly is an extraordinary story. He has a degree in medicine and he was working for the genomics company Illumina as a data engineer. Like many of his compatriots, he signed up to fight. And because of his medical training, he was put into a unit of the Ukrainian army as a medic and went off to train for three weeks. And then we spoke finally on the evening that he was deploying to the front line just hours before. And we had, you know, a conversation that I will likely remember for the rest of my life, speaking to somebody so calm, so collected, so in touch with what he was about to do with his life. Did you not get a sense that he was frightened about what he was was going to do? I mean, that's the first question that occurred to me. And I asked him, in fact, and his very sort of frank answer was, no, not really. He caveated that by saying, we'll see after the first shelling, which I believe he has now experienced. I mean, I have to ask, have you managed to get in contact with him since you interviewed him, since he was deployed to the front line? Yes. So we continue to WhatsApp when he has signal. He has told me that they've been experiencing quite heavy Russian bombardments on several nights, but no casualties yet in his unit, which obviously is very relieving to hear. And we had a little back and forth when I sent him the article, which he was really, really pleased to say and said that it really boosted morale, which was a wonderful thing to hear and such a rare piece of feedback that you would get from a source. And one of the little things that stood out to me about his story in particular, even among all the things that are going on right now, in his small amount of free time, he was finding space to do a bioinformatics course online and writing code on his smartphone. And he isn't the only one doing things like this. Yeah, I can only imagine what my response to a live conflict on my doorstep would be. And I would imagine that, you know, work or science would be going out of the window immediately. But here we have these three individuals. And I know this story is repeated many times over because of the people that I've spoken to that Ukrainian researchers are logging in from basements to do genomics classes and science lectures. Taras teaches a genomics class in Ukraine once a week. He says many students log in from air raid shelters. Elena says the same. Uh, She's also continues to teach her classes in Ukraine. So it's this incredible show of strength that life continues and science continues. And what of science then? I I know you spoke to them all about the future and their hopes. It seems like maybe a a strange thing to think about in the middle of a conflict, but what were their thoughts on the future of Ukrainian science? Well, that is a difficult question and a difficult topic to talk about because of the destruction that has been wrought by this war. We know that many science centres have been destroyed by Russia through bombing and that the devastation is almost too much to comprehend 
And that is something that will take time. This conflict is still ongoing. We don't know how long it's going to go on for, but it unfortunately looks like Ukraine will have to do a complete reconstruction of its science system. But that will be aided by its very young cohort of scientists. It's notable that a lot of Ukrainian science departments are led by these very young, vibrant leaders. And it was really starting to kind of shake off its Soviet association after it gained independence and after its revolution. But the question of science in Ukraine after this war is still a very uncertain one. And I know that many, like Elena, hope to return home. They don't know whether they have a home to return to. And that is obviously the first focus for many refugee scientists. Nisha, if we can broaden things out a little bit, of course, we are science reporters. We report on the latest paper or the latest discovery or what have you. This couldn't be more different. I mean, how was it for you reporting the story? What are some of the practicalities and how did it affect you personally? Yeah, that's a great question. As science reporters, we are often reporting on good news, you know, developments that would benefit humanity. And in this case, we're reporting on the very worst news. So that does affect me as a reporter. But, you know, I must caveat that by saying anything that I experience as a reporter is nothing that compares to what the people of Ukraine are going through right now. Overall, yeah, it's it's been a different story to report because usually when you speak to sources, you set up a very civilised time to chat to them. But in this case, I'm trying to speak to people who are fleeing their country or are on a front line. So that meant speaking at times when they're available, which aren't necessarily sociable. So for example, when I spoke to Valerie, who was about to deploy, I, I was in the I was in the back of an Uber and waiting a couple of days to hear back from him if he has signal, because there's no guarantee that he will. So it's been a very different experience in that sense, because typically we do report on wars, but we don't do a vast amount of war reporting. So it has been a different and humbling experience to tell the stories of these scientists. Nature's European bureau chief, Nisha Gained there. Look out for a link to her feature article in the show notes. Finally on the podcast, we have some more astronomy news. Last week, you may have seen a picture of a black hole doing the rounds. In fact, it was the black hole at the centre of our own galaxy, Sagittarius A-star. So here to help me catch up on what this is all about and why physicists are so excited is Davide Castelvecchi, nature's own black hole correspondent. Davide, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? I'm not so bad, thanks. So my first question is, as our sort of black hole correspondent slash physics buff, how excited are you about this picture? Just to give you an idea, this picture has been more than 20 years in the making. People started proposing this could be done in the late 1990s. And it is the largest black hole in the Milky Way by far. On the other hand, it's only the beginning. This is a relatively new technique. It's only the second black hole that's been imaged this way. And it is still, you know, at the very rudimentary phase. At the same time, there's a lot of information that scientists have already been able to extract from it. So it is very exciting. This, as you said, is the second ever direct image of a black hole. And, you know, from a sort of lay perspective, it kind of looks similar to the one we saw in 2019, the one from M87. So I guess, how does it differ from the first? So to some extent, they are reassuringly similar because according to Albert Einstein's general relativity, 
we know that they should be very simple looking objects and their shape is just determined by their size. What's different here is that this one is a lot closer. It's more than a thousand times closer than the previous one, but also more than a thousand times smaller. And so the way it appears in the sky is about the same. What's different is because it's so much smaller, the matter that we see orbiting the black hole doesn't have to go as much distance to go around it. And so, you know, if you see a blob of matter of like superheated plasma orbiting the black hole, it will orbit in a matter of minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Whereas in the previous case, it would have taken days. One source I talked to told me taking a picture of our galaxy's black hole is a little bit like trying to take a picture of a two-year-old child. You know, it, it's, it's, it never stays still. He or she never stays still. Whereas in the case of the 2019 unveiling, it was a black hole that you could take data for hours and basically see no variation. And this two-year-old sort of nature of this uh, black hole, as I understand it, that's also part of the reason why, even though these observations were taken back in 2017, it's taken this long to actually get the picture. Indeed. And the picture we see is actually not a picture that they took over any period of time. They were taking data over several nights and they took more than a thousand separate pictures. And then what we see is the result of a sort of averaging of all those pictures. And one thing that is specific about this new picture that people have commented on are these three bright spots on it. Do researchers have an idea of what these are and what they might show? Taking these images is extraordinarily difficult technical achievement. What they're trying to do is image very, very tiny details in the sky using telescopes that are spread around the planet. So that way, it's as if you had a telescope dish that is as large as the planet. But of course, you don't have the whole dish. It's like you only have tiny little shards of one dish. And then you have to reconstruct an image. And that, as you can imagine, is, you know, has its own limitations. And probably these brighter spots are artifacts of the way that the image is reconstructed. And can this reveal anything more about black holes as we know them? So this is still the early days. And what we've seen so far is absolutely consistent with other observations and with theoretical predictions. The size of this image is in the ballpark of what it should be given its mass, the, the mass that we already knew it had. Once the technique improves, it will not be just a ballpark measurement. It will start being a precision check on the theory. And then the other thing is, it's really interesting to see how the environment around the black hole evolves. And in particular, the matter that's orbiting it, is it still orbiting in the same way? Or will there be another cloud of matter that will fall in and maybe will orbit in a different way? And how does that relate to everything else that we see in the central region of the galaxy? So this could tell us more about our galaxy as well and how things orbit the black hole there. Absolutely, because most galaxies are known to have such a supermassive black hole at their center. And we know from observing many other galaxies that these black holes, they play a, a crucial role in the evolution of the galaxy itself. They can undergo periods where they engorge themselves with matter at a very high rate. And this matter that is falling in also produces enormous amounts of radiation and shock waves. And all of this can 
move matter around in a galaxy, it can shut down the, the formation of stars in a galaxy, or it can start the formation of new stars in a galaxy. So it would be interesting to go also back in the history of our own galaxy and see how the black hole might have affected it. And you've been speaking to some of the researchers involved in this. How are they sort of feeling? Are they excited, thrilled? What was their sort of feeling when they revealed this? I think a lot of them felt vindicated because they had worked on this for decades. And there had been skeptics along the way, people who said, you know, you, you'll never be able to do it. For many of these researchers, it's a culmination of their careers. For many others, you know, especially the younger ones, it's, it's the beginning because we're still at the early stages of this new kind of astronomy. Well, that's a good point. What are the sort of next steps beyond this? Are we going to see many more images like this in the future? Well, many more in the sense of they are still observing these two black holes every year. Not more images in the sense that there aren't many other objects in the sky that you can observe. Basically, these are the two black holes that we know of that appear large enough in the sky to be imaged with this technique. That was Nature's Davide Castelvecchi. For more on this story, check out a news article written by Davide, and we'll link to that in the show notes. And that's all for this week. As always, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or you can email us, podcast at nature.com. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Nick Perchichow. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.